This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. Every day we're bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance, plus technology, politics, so much going on in the world of politics, economics, and it's all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. You know, it's interesting here, uh, Sarah, I think the market is just really focusing on those the fiscal stimulus discussions. And again, the, there is a deadline tomorrow, but I don't know, it just the field doesn't uh, look that great right here, even though the president uh, is, in fact, pushing for it. Right. You described as that it as on again, off again. We could probably add four more on agains and off agains to that. <laughs> That's right. Uh, but it looks like, and I've gotten some emails from investors to say, today saying that the packages that have presented still look to be a non-starter between the Democrat, Democrats and Republicans, and it's just looking a bit unlikely ahead of the election. All right. Let's set the Business Week uh, agenda here. Let's kick it off. We can do that with Gina Martin-Adams, Chief Equity Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. She joins us on the phone from New Jersey. And Dave Wilson, of course, Bloomberg Stocks Editor, uh, also on the remote access from the great state of New Jersey. Gina, let's start with you here. You have a fascinating uh, piece of research out talking about some of the underperformers and how this third quarter earnings season may be a catalyst. Yeah, I think it can be. Um, first, good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to Monday. Uh, a little bit of a slow Monday so far, but not Happy Monday. <laughs> Happy Monday. Um, you know, uh, what we talked about today in our note is a basket of oversold stocks that we follow on a weekly basis. We rebalance the most oversold stocks in the S&P 500, and any given week tend to dramatically outperform over a week's time as they bounce off of very, very low levels. And what we've done in that note is highlighted that there are a few of those key oversold stocks that are due to report earnings this week. And they may have the opportunity to really change uh, what has been a very sour tone, um, at least from the market response to earnings. So far, we've had tremendous reports out of the financial sector, really, really strong beats. More than 80% of companies that have reported have beat expectations, and yet the price action in response to those expectations has been negative. So we're looking for these reporters to potentially change that tone um, on our shortlist are Verizon, AT&T, and Las Vegas fans to watch this week. Dave, let's bring you in here because in addition to the names that Gina just named for us, we'll also hear from Tesla this week, Netflix. Sure, it's been a sour tone, but we are entering the second largest week of earnings season of the season. What are you keeping an eye on this week? Well, I mean, it's just a matter of how forthcoming our company is going to be when it comes to talking about their prospects for this quarter or next year. I mean, certainly one of the stories of 2020 is that the coronavirus led a lot of companies to withdraw their forecasts. We've seen some of them come back. Uh, Others have been more reluctant to forecast, even if, say, their third quarter results are uh, relatively positive. So, you know, that that's definitely going to be worth watching as we uh, proceed through all these earnings reports due in the next couple of weeks. So, Gina, you mentioned the banks here. What was your takeaway from the banks here? It seems like the numbers were pretty good, but the outlook was perhaps a little bit more conservative. Are you, do you expect to hear some of that going forward with some of these other non-bank companies? Yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful not, because I do think that that's what got in the way of the banks is, you know, they did come out and dramatically beat expectations. As a matter of fact, at the start of earnings season, financial sector was expected to produce earnings an earnings drop of nearly 5%. And just because of the banks that reported last week, 
that earnings decline is now expected to be less than 3%. So they did make a very big adjustment to expectations. All of the S&P 500 is virtually adjusting expectations higher for third quarter, but that's where the buck stops, and that's the problem I think that the market is running into is analysts are not taking the cues from an incredible beat in the second quarter, and now it's looking like a very, very strong beat in the third quarter to raise expectations into the future. As a matter of fact, this is what we're writing about for tomorrow is expectations into future quarters have basically just been stagnant and have been for some time because analysts are not taking any sort of confidence boost out of these earnings results. Uh, Dave mentioned the guidance has been relatively limited. The guidance that we have gotten has been very strong, but it's just a handful of companies that's willing to tell us that it's very strong, and those are the companies that have been strong throughout for the most part. So we need something to change. Um, We need a little bit more visibility to evolve, I think. Uh, If not, we're going to be sort of churning for a while, waiting for that visibility to improve into 2021, I fear. Gina, what are the underlying signals of the market really telling us, though, at the moment? I look at the NASDAQ 100 right now, down about 1%, down for a fifth day. That's the longest losing streak since August. But at the same time, we have to remember small caps, the Russell 2000s, up more than 8% this month. We've also seen some other cyclical areas of the market performing well. Can you take that and run with it as a bullish signal? Yeah, we actually wrote about this in our chart book last Thursday, that even though the market is churning, there are some really strong signals of rotation emerging in that churn. One of them is, as you correctly identify, the small cap index. We've also seen really key constituents of industrials and technology breakout. Um, Our automated technical pattern recognition software recognized a breakout in Caterpillar as well as Micron last week. So those are pretty strong indications of a rotation. And this has been our theme since late August is we think the market is going through a rotation, rotating to potentially stronger earnings growers in the year ahead, as opposed to the defensive stories, which has really dominated the market's gains from the March lows. And that rotation can mean the market can turn sideways for a while. uh, But if we're rotating into super cyclicals, we're rotating into leading indicators or leading stocks then it probably is a pretty good sign of things to come once we've reached the end of that churning process. Dave, real quick, what are you looking for uh, earnings-wise? What's the big one next up? IBM after the close. That's going to be the one to watch. IBM after the close. We're going to have Anurag Rana from Bloomberg Intelligence. He's going to join us right after the close to kind of give us his quick take of those numbers. Gina Martin-Adams, thank you so much for joining us. Chief Equity Strategist, Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us on the phone from New Jersey. And the Dave Wilson, Bloomberg Stocks Editor, also on remote from New Jersey. We've got New Jersey covered, Sarah. I'm in Jersey as well, but you are in the studio. I am in the studio. I must say that it's a little bit more lively in the office today, but still nothing like it used to be, obviously. We miss you in here. That's right. We'll be hopefully we'll get back there soon. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. We're really in the, in that prime testing stage right now where there's a lot of tests going on around the world. Bloomberg News Venture Capital reporter Sarah McBride is actually taking part in one of those tests. Let's get a, a real sense of what we're looking at there. Sarah, thanks so much for joining us. Um, tell us about what you're doing and why you're doing it. <laughs> Well, um, at the beginning of the pandemic, I just felt awful about everything that was happening. And the worst thing for me was how scared everybody was because nobody really knew what COVID was, how they could catch it, where, when. So I just uh, wanted to do something to try to 
help the situation. So I thought I would look into vaccine trials, and I did a lot of research online, figured out which trials would be taking place in the San Francisco area where I live, and um, figured out how to sign up for one of those. And it was tough because even if you know the drug companies that are going to be testing vaccines, I learned a lot. I learned they outsourced those tests to different clinics. So then you have to figure out which the clinics are doing it. And then you have to call them and get in their databases. But um, eventually I uh, managed to sign up for the Pfizer trial. So, Sarah, give us some color on what it actually looks like or feels like to be in one of these trials. I mean, how long have you been in it? How often do you have to be checking in? Do you have to go in for in-person visits? What does this all look like? Sure. So um, I went to this clinic in Walnut Creek, California, called the Diablo Clinic. It was very well run, um, lots of distancing, uh, very kind of efficient feeling. I didn't feel like I was wasting any time, but it was a substantial commitment of time. The first time that I went was probably about two hours, tons of paperwork. I met with a doctor. I met with a phlebotomist. They did a COVID test, um, but they don't really tell you any of the results because they don't want you to know if you're getting the placebo or the real thing. And also, they don't know. I have a patient number, all my records are somehow separated from my name. So, you know, I asked them, do you know what I got? And they said, no, we have it all rigged up so we can't tell. And um, the actual shot for what was either the vaccine or the placebo came at the end of that first visit. It was very funny because there was this, you know, I was being led from room to room for different tests and talks with different people. And then there was a big empty room, empty except for a huge (laughs) blue chair. It almost looked regal, except it looked so (laughs) medical at the same time. And I sat down and they gave me my shot. I felt fine that first time. Um, I went back for a booster shot, again, either the real thing or the placebo Three weeks later, that hit me pretty hard. I, you know, I can't say for sure if I got the vaccine or if it was just a coincidence that maybe I got a weird bout of 24-hour flu or something around the same time, but I did not feel good after that. Um, I've been back once more about a month after that shot so they could take blood work and so on. I imagine they're testing me for um, COVID and antibodies again, and then I will go back three more times over the course of two years total. So at the end of the two-year study, I'll have been to this clinic six times. And I also have an app on my phone. So it's called TrialMax. I had to download it on my first visit. So after each of those shots, every single day, it would ping me and ask me, are you experiencing nausea? Is your temperature elevated? There were a bunch of questions that I would have to go through and answer on that app. Since then, it now buzzes me once a week and just asks, are you experiencing symptoms? And I'm not. So I've said no, and then there are no more questions on the app. Um, Thank goodness I haven't experienced symptoms. If I ever do, I'd imagine the questions, again, would be more comprehensive on the app. So, Sarah, do I take from this that Pfizer won't know whether this 
is this test is effective for two years as opposed to people are talking about weeks or months trying to get some knowledge from these tests? No, my take, and this is just based on um, reading a lot of what my colleagues at Bloomberg have been reporting, is they'll have a pretty good idea. I mean, let's say that I went um, and had the test or, or had the shot, and um, I had the second one on September 1st. So I've already been back once. They've measured my blood for antibodies. So let's say I did get the real shot and not the booster. They already know whether my blood has antibodies in it. So I think they have a good idea. And there are 45,000 people like me across the country that have been a part of this trial. So they are getting those early results of whether the people who got the early tests have antibodies or not. They are starting to see that right now. Right. And so, so then over two years, they'll be checking for the people who got the real shot, oh, do they still have antibodies six months later? Do they still have them a year later? Do they still have them two years later? So it's, I think that part is testing how long it might be effective. So really quick, just to wrap up, Sarah, is your sense then that the test, the study might not end for two years, but if there are signs that it works, they'll release it to the public before it's over? That's what they've said that they're planning to do. And again, they'll know whether it's working right now and then the rest of it is just to see how long it works for and one more thing i'd like to say that i felt really sick after that second test so clear your schedule once you do get the vaccine (laughs) if that was the real thing sarah mcbride thank you so much we appreciate that sarah mcbride she's a venture capital reporter for bloomberg news joining us on the phone from san francisco this is bloomberg business week with carol masser from bloomberg radio let's get to that m a activity ConocoPhillips buying Concho Resources for about $9.7 billion in stock. That's the largest shale industry deal since a collapse in energy demand earlier this year. Let's get some details. We can do that with our good friend Fernando Valley, oil and gas analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. He joins us on the phone from New York City. So, Fernando, thumbs up or thumbs down? Do you like this deal and why? Hi, Paul. Uh, glad to be here. Definitely like this deal for, for both, really. It, they're two of the premier players in the shale patch. And for Conoco, you're getting a, an entity that already generates free cash flow, has a lot of locations in an area, the Permian Basin, uh, where you really didn't have any locations beforehand. And if you're Concho, you're getting an all-stock deal, so you still capture uh, an eventual upside from an oil price recovery in the next several years. And you're getting probably one of the few companies that's been all about generating free, free cash flow from shale for the past 10 years. Uh, Conoco is really right-sized for... Uh, a lower for longer uh, from the 2014 oil price crash. So they came into this downturn already prepared for a, an eventual prolonged uh, weakness. And so they're in really good shape. And Conoco really also helps lower the corporate declines. Remember, shale declines really quickly at, at first. And so Conoco, because they have exposure to LNG, oil sands, conventional, their corporate decline rates are closer to 10% as opposed to you know the 30 to 40% you'd see in shale. So thumbs up all around from you, Fernando. How does this Concho acquisition, though, change Conoco's production profile and strategy, if at all? It doesn't really change their strategy, uh, mostly because Concho is also being focused on uh, more moderate growth and returns, as opposed to some of the players that were growing at 50 to 60 percent per annum and taking on significant leverage. Uh, the post, uh, post-merger 
profile, they're still going to be under one and a half times net debt to, to EBITDA, uh, more so if they capture the $500 million in synergies they mentioned. Um, so their strategy is really complementary. Uh, what it does change is that it increases Conoco's consolidated decline rate, as I mentioned. Um, but it does so in uh, the core of the Permian Basin, which is the, the premier shale basin. Uh, when you have the profile uh, and the other assets that Conoco has, it can be a complementary play. It can be something where they don't they don't need to grow it at 30 to 40 percent per annum. They can grow more slowly and and really get that cash return on on capital that they've been targeting for a really long time. And they need it because their Bakken uh, position is dwindling. Their Eagle Ford position is also uh, slowing down considerably. So they need it to grow, and the place to grow in the U.S. at the current uh, oil price outlook is really the Permian Basin. All right, Fernando, as a former investment banker, this is my next question. Are we going to do more deals uh, in the shale patch? Are we going to, is this just, just the beginning? It, it, I mean, the beginning really was uh, Chevron Novo, and, and this is by, uh, certainly not the last one, we don't think. Uh, there is a, a need for the industry to right size for a lower, for longer or a lower forever oil price scenario. And a lot of the, 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 the companies were really preparing for $65 to $70. And we just don't see that happening anytime soon. Um, you're either looking to improve your overall drilling locations. You may have uh, produced too much and uh, run out of the really good stuff um, in, in, in your portfolio or you could have uh, an issue with your balance sheet. So for Conoco, uh, they were looking for more locations. For Concho, they were looking for a really strong balance sheet. Um, and that that makes sense. Uh, where we see an issue are the players that have both run through most of its portfolio and also have significant leverage. So we think we'll see mergers in the high-quality names, uh, but the lower-quality, highly-leveraged names, they'll struggle to catch a bid in this scenario. There's a lot of resources out there, not necessarily a lot of capital, so it's really the high quality names that we're going to be looked at. So quick Fernando. one to wrap it up. Yeah, good. So quick one to wrap it up. So if we have $40 a barrel, we're really lodged here for some time. Are there any other companies out there you see as potential targets? Uh, there are certainly companies that will look to merge, whether they're the targets or they are the consolidators. It remains to be seen because you could see high quality names like an EOG and Pioneer or Diamondback, Parsley Energy, look to merge together with uh, small or no premiums to right. reduce costs and improve locations. So Interesting. All right, for now, we're going to have to leave it there, but we're going to have some more deal activity from you, I am sure. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. Fascinating story in the magazine here uh, coming up. It's, um, you know, just as we you thought you're getting back to a little bit of normal in terms of the restaurants and going out to eat cases, particularly in Europe, surging putting the restaurant industry on its back foot again. Joel Weber joins us. He's editor of Bloomberg Business Week. He joins us from the remote line from Brooklyn. And Robert Vines, chief food critic for Bloomberg News. He joins us on the phone from London. So, Joel, just when the you know the, our friends over in Europe, I'm seeing stories in Paris and London and other cities in Italy as well, just trying to get on their feet again, then the infections go back up. It's not good for their business, is it? It's a story um, everywhere, you know, and it's like the just when you think you're like rounding a corner, uh, you know, cases sneak back up and or surge, and you know, restaurants in particular are the ones that have been, you know, they were they've really been just like on the front lines of this. Um, and it, you know, Richard uh, Vines is the one who who came to us 
from um, London to say, let's let's talk about restaurants here. So, so Richard, give us a sneak peek of kind of what's been happening in the UK and, and London as uh, infections go up and, and restaurants are, are caught in the in the in the vice. Yes, good evening, London. Well, deaths have doubled in the UK in the past 12 days. So obviously, the government's rather concerned. The, uh, last month, they introduced the 10 p.m. closing time for restaurants. It's quite serious. You can imagine you out friends once you eat and drink, and uh, 10 o'clock you have to be out on the street, and that's been bad enough. But now they just introduced further restrictions. You can't eat at restaurants with people who are not in your household or in your group. So I'm single, for example. It means basically I can't go to restaurants. So quite a serious situation. It's, uh, I'm uh, home. I just have dinner myself at home because where am I going to go? I'm not going down to the pub on my own. So, Richard, I get the sense that last time around, the subsidies really helped these restaurants. But obviously, subsidies can't be too helpful if there are curfews uh, in play or if you just can't go out and eat at a restaurant or there are higher restrictions. When you speak with restaurateurs, with restaurant owners, especially those that are more so local and mom and pop owned, what's their tone like right now? What's the feel? The tone is of total desolation and depression, I'm afraid. Corbyn and King, which one of the big restaurant groups in London, they own a place called the Wolseley it's known internationally, when the latest restrictions came in, they had 2,000 cancellations in 24 hours. And the British government has actually been very helpful and supportive to restaurants uh, or, or to businesses in general, paying uh, for wage, for staff of furlough and so on. But those uh, subsidies are easing down now, and it looks like restrictions are coming back on more seriously. Wales, just uh, it's on Friday, introducing a total lockdown. Scotland's introduced much stricter measures, and... Uh, London, as I say, has come into stricter measures. So I'd say the mood is quite uh, depressed. And a group of restaurateurs, chefs and restaurateurs, were demonstrating outside Parliament today, banging their pots and pans. But I don't think anyone really thinks that's going to help. And, and Richard, what about the the pub scene, which has been, you know, it's obviously like a, a staple of English life in a way that that um, uh, Americans envy in probably normal times. Um, what's what's that scene like now that um, you know the restaurants are, are closed? What's the pub situation? Well, the pub situation is very bad because pubs usually can stay open late. And now that again, the ten first of all, first of all, the ten o'clock closing is uh, depressing. The thing in, in the UK is you can stand out and drink on the street, which you can't in New York, right? So that's something. So people can go outside with their drinks to have a good time. But generally, business is down seriously, and pubs are closing all the time. All right, so. Richard, give us a sense as to the um, the density issue. Like, in, are can can a restaurant be open and, and seat a hundred percent, or is it fifty percent or twenty five percent? Because it's we have some limitations here in the states. Yeah, people, they, they, there are limitations. It depends on the place and so on. But the main thing is the distancing between in in the UK is distancing between different tables. So in in Copenhagen, for example, it's another um, city I've been looking at. They've got a maximum of people. 50 in the restaurant. Here it's more a question of distancing between tables, which means places can't, uh, generally can't operate much beyond 60, 70% of capacity, which, you know, when people are spending less and then just have fewer customers and then going home earlier, of course, the numbers don't really add up. And, and Richard, what about um, delivery? Since that's become such, you know, like at least here in the US, um, restaurants have just gone all in on it. It's, it is or, or takeout for that matter. It's just sort of the the new the new normal. Um, wh- how are how are restaurants managing 
uh, to pivot and is it a, a permanent shift or, or have they found their footing in a, in a short-term kind of way? I think it's a permanent shift. It's really surprising some of the restaurants that are doing it. Um, Daniel Hum, the chef from 11 Madison Park, is doing uh, home delivery from Claridge's Hotel in London, which is something that would have been completely unthinkable before the virus. And right down to the neighborhood Japanese restaurants, I was speaking to the owner of one, he said they were a bit precious about their food, wasn't suitable for home delivery, but now everyone's got to do it because people are eating at home and this is, uh, restaurants have to get all the business they can. I think this is going to be a permanent shift, but certainly in the short term, it's a very extreme shift. It really is amazing to see how some of these restaurants have reacted. I know in New York City, just seeing the dining on the sidewalks, which is more so relevant in Europe in normal times, but it's just amazing to watch. But I want to get your sense, if these restrictions last or if they get worse over in Europe, do you have any sense of how long the average restaurant can last? They can wait this out? I think a lot of restaurants will announce closure in the next month or two, actually. I think it's it's going to be a fairly short-term thing. Restaurants in the UK had a holiday on their um, their uh, rents during the lockdown and so on. Those bills are all coming due now. So restaurants are trying to operate with far reduced income, no reserves, and then facing huge bills. Um, so I'm personally very pessimistic for restaurants, I have to say. Even though I want everyone to do well, I think uh, only the very best or the people with the biggest pockets are going to survive, deepest pockets. Richard Vines, thank you so much for joining us. Just a fascinating piece there. And, uh, you know, our hearts God. We really feel for the folks uh, in Europe that are experiencing this surge uh, and how it's impacting their lives, including on uh, the restaurant business. Richard Vines, chief food critic for Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone from London. And, of course, Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week on the remote access line from Brooklyn. Thank you so much for uh, joining us. And, and, Sarah, that's a big issue as we head into these colder months. You know, I'm not sure how many people are going to be standing outside the pub. Um, so it's really important uh, for these businesses to try to get – you know, some to, to kind of continue their business, but in a safe way. Right. It's a very big question mark. One, what do restrictions look like? Also, just the weather itself, as you said. I think about dining in the city right now. These restaurants are doing absolutely everything they can, and people seem to be grasping onto it and enjoying it. But if it is sub 40 degrees outside and you have a heater, sure, still, how willing are people going to be to actually go venture outside in a coat and eat outside? Yeah, exactly right. And we're starting to get to that point in the year where the, the heaters are good, um, but you are, know, they are, they, are they enough here? And, you know, when we're standing out there and there's uh, 10 inches of snow, I don't think we're going to be sitting outside on the street, but maybe some intrepid uh, diners will. We'll see. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser on Bloomberg Radio. I am Paul Sweeney alongside Sarah Ponza. Carol will be back later this hour. I mean, Sarah, it's really interesting here. First, Jack Ma brought us Alibaba, the huge Amazon-like type of company. Uh, now he brings us another company called Ant Financial. It is winding its way through the regulatory process on its way to an initial public offering. A lot of people don't know that much about Ant Financial, but one person who does is Andy Brown. He is editorial director for Bloomberg's New Economy. He joins us on the phone from New York City. Andy, thanks so much uh, for joining us here. It looks like this IPO might happen relatively soon. I wonder if you could just tell us what is Ant Financial <laughs> and how big is this thing? So Ant Financial is huge. 
um, you can think about Ant Financial, as the Economist put it in its latest edition, as a combination of Apple Pay, PayPal, Venmo, Mastercard, J.P. Morgan, <laughs> iShares, with an insurance brokerage thrown in. Okay. So just a it few small entities. In <laughs> it, it, it's 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 really it's a block, and it's all by the way in one single app. So Ant is going public at the end of this month. And it's going to be the biggest IPO in history, way bigger than Saudi Aramco last year, $30 billion or more, which would value the company at about $280 billion, bigger than any single U.S. bank except J.P. Morgan. So, Andy, as you wrote recently, data wars are the new trade wars. Clearly, as you just described, Ant has so much consumer information. Do we expect, or already have we seen the U.S. administration want to go after the likes of Ant, just as we saw earlier this year, which I think we can call it the TikTok saga? Yeah, this is really a battle for the digital future of the world. Chinese companies are scooping up massive amounts of data, personal data, everywhere. So you think about this, Ant Financial in China has, it grew out of a, of a payments uh, system, Alipay, this ubiquitous payments uh, app that has 700 million or more Chinese users. So basically, Ant knows everything about the spending habits of pretty much everybody in China. And they're now doing these joint ventures with companies around Asia, India, Thailand, Philippines, um, uh, sort of retrofitting, they're buying into companies, retrofitting them with ant technologies. And so they have a lot of insight into, into the data of about a billion or more people now around the world and could easily double that number in, inside five years. Andy, what's the relationship between the U.S. government and Ant Financial? I mean, there's got to be a lot of concern there. Yeah, so, so essentially it's put into the category of, of national security risks. So Reuters has reported that the U.S. State Department under Mike Pompeo uh, is trying its best to derail this, this listing. Uh, and um, so it has proposed, according to Reuters, that um, uh, Ant should go onto a, a blacklist, this entities list. Have only some, it would have only symbolic importance. It's not like Huawei, which is really dependent, completely dependent, actually, on U.S. technology. In this case, on Ant, it would be largely symbolic, but it would make the listing, it would, it would definitely complicate this listing. It would put a cloud of uncertainty around its global expansion. Don't forget, the U.S. is not the only country in the world that's worried about China getting control over data. Europe has concerns. India, by the way, also banned TikTok, uh, not just the U.S. And as you said earlier, this really is a race for digital dominance around the world. I wonder, though, not even just the U.S., as you said, but other countries, how much sway, how much teeth do they actually have? I know Bloomberg Opinion described the TikTok deal as a, quote, empty threat once we saw it finally finished and through and President Trump had approved it, how much can other companies or other countries, I should say, actually do? Well, I, think, I think it really does depend on, on the company, one. And number two, it depends on uh, their level of dependency on U.S. technology. Um, but also, I think it's, a lot of it really depends on an overall assessment of Chinese risk. The problem that the, the, the private sector in China face is that they are seen as essentially um, handmaidens of or enthralled to the Chinese state. I mean, private companies have an explicit mandate to serve the state. 
That's fine domestically insofar as it gives them access to privileged capital, to protected markets. When they go overseas, they're, they're, they're trusted about as much as the Chinese. They're as good as the Chinese state. And as we've seen from Pew surveys just in the last week, levels of trust around the world towards China are plunging. So, Andy, what... I mean, this, this could be a big issue because I, I know Ant's big in, obviously, China. They're looking at India. What are the U.S. plans and strategy, given TikTok, given everything that's going on? Yeah, well, see, so this is, this is the big difference where you have TikTok, which really took the U.S. by storm. I mean, it's it, tens of millions of, of active users. Ant Financial actually has almost no business in the U.S., unless you count Chinese travelers that are coming over to the U.S. and, and using Ant uh, to access financial services uh, back home. So, you know, they made a big play in 2018 to get into the Chinese market. They wanted to buy MoneyGram and CFIUS, the agency that, you know, uh, uh, vets uh, foreign acquisitions in the U.S., turned that down. So that was a big U.S. play, which was completely derailed by the, by, by, by the U.S. government. Andy Brown, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Andy Brown, he's the editorial director for Bloomberg New Economy, joining us on the phone from New York City. And uh, Sarah, this is going to be interesting. This is going to be, as Andy was just uh, reporting, is going to be potentially the biggest IPO on record. Um, And this company is just extraordinary. You know, it, it was once a part of Alibaba, just to give you a sense of just how big Alibaba was before they spun this Ant Financial off. Right. And Alibaba does still own a third of Ant after spinning it out. But like you said, we think about the hype that was really surrounding Saudi Aramco when we saw that IPO. Imagine once this does go public, how much attention this is going to get across financial markets, not just in Hong Kong. Yeah, and it's going to be interesting. The um, again, as we're talking to Andy Brown about this, the relationship, the trade relationship, the tensions between China and the U.S. Uh, it played out. We saw it play out uh, in TikTok. I'm not really sure where we en- ended up there, uh, but this is a company that is even more strategic uh, from both Chinese perspective and perhaps from the U.S. perspective. That might warrant uh, some, uh, you know, closer um, oversight by uh, regulators around the world. We'll have to see. I'm driving in my car, I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, so just got about 11 minutes, Paul Sweeney, left in today's trading session. And I feel like almost from the get-go, it's just been like a, a rock slowly yeah. falling, <laughs> right, going down the hill. Yeah. Uh, we're just off our lows, but nonetheless, we're pretty much near it, uh, down about 1.5% of both the S&P and NASDAQ, down about one and a third percent on the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Let's bring in Michael Cugino. He is president and portfolio manager at the Permanent Portfolio Family of Funds, approximately $2.2 billion in assets under management and he joins us on the phone from san francisco michael it's good to have you back with us how are you 
Not bad, Carol. How are you? How are you doing? It's been a while in person, so it's great to be on. I had a thought uh, listening to the montage on driving songs before this segment started. <laughs> you guys got to add Gary Newman here in my car. <laughs> yeah, I will let going back I, to the early '80s, my my age demographic. So I will definitely let our producer Paul Brennan know that. <laughs> um, you guys are doing well. Your permanent portfolio fund in the 92nd percentile for funds in its category of the, the past five years, and you're up. I guess around 7% on average annually in each of the past five years. What's working right now in this environment? I mean, we know big tech has worked really well, those FANG stocks. What are you finding is working well for you guys? Well, broadly speaking, we tend to do better when markets are mixed and environments are mixed. And, you know, the last couple of years, it's begun to be a more mixed picture than maybe the better part of the last 10 years, which was, you know, buy S&P 500 and buy long bond funds and buy an index and you did great. Um, and so, you know, I think the next 10 years are probably going to look different. And as a result, I think the markets have started to reflect that. What's worked for us so far this year has been, uh, I would say the growth stocks, um, you know, have come back very strongly in a variety of industries for us. We were buyers um, in February and March. We were also buyers recently in September, although not as great. We were nibbling in a lot of areas that we felt got oversold in, in the in the sell-off, as well as some, you know, structurally sell-off areas like energy and materials and, and some of the, the cyclical growth that, that really has, has lagged, um, while also continuing to hold some of our tech. Um, and so that's worked well. I mean, natural resources have, you know, they've begun to show some improvement, but they have a long way to go. REITs, uh, you know, similar with all the issues on the economy coming out of COVID and what's going to happen with uh, entities that own assets that need to rent space, uh, whether it's residential or industrial or office or, you know, retail. Um, and bonds have been a, a slight contributor for us. Um, mm-hmm. We've been, you know, low duration, high quality. We've found some opportunities in the short term um, investment grade credit markets. So we've also gotten some contribution from bonds there. Hey, Michael, how about on the precious metal side, uh, gold, silver? I'm looking at gold here back up above $1,900 an ounce. How are you viewing that right now? You guys like gold, Michael, right? Yeah, you know what? And I and I I get, I get into the stocks and bonds and didn't you know neglected to mention the precious metals. Because isn't like the, the, the number one holding? Isn't that the number one holding in your fund? Uh, gold, gold is yeah. Mm-hmm. So you know, I I mentioned industrial metals and 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 materials, but you know the the alternative currency side of things, the gold and silver have obviously worked for us. Um, and I think there's a variety of reasons for that. I mean, you have negative real interest rates across the curve, starting with the 30-year and in, and, um, and even worse globally. So that's U.S., and they look even worse when you look at, you know, rates around the world. You have the uncertain environment with respect to COVID. You have the uncertain recovery, the duration, the, the, the length, um, the strength. The employment picture's mixed. You got a really uh, a lot of headline risk with respect to the election right now, um, and then what comes after that. And so, and and COVID really overrides it all. Given that we've never been through this, we've never shut down the country before, and then tried to bring it back up. Um, and it's uh, you know it's going to be two steps forward, one step back, which we're not surprised by. But that's it. That is in fact what's transpired, and we expect that to continue. Well, it should gain momentum given pent up demand, slack in labor, slack in capital. I mean, all those things argue for a, a continued momentum growing situation when we get a vaccine, when we get a, a viral or uh, just if we get herd immunity or something like that. So, you know, there is an end to all this, and it's going to be uncertain till we get there. Um, and since we've never been through it before, I really can't trust anybody's 
predictions about uh, what's going to happen, and, and that's a big risk factor for but investors. It, but it's a vaccine, right? Ultimately, I mean, I don't think we expect herd immunity to, to fix this. So it's stay safe until we get a vaccine, essentially, right? Well, that would be the one with the most certainty. But again, we're, we're dealing with a lot of unknowns here. And I know people like to say, trust the science. But from my perspective, science has been all over the place. Um, and it's probably been just as useful to use common sense, social distance, um, be smart about how you're interacting and where, um, as, as pure reliance on any sort of science. I mean, I've seen so many co- contradicting studies over the last seven months, and it's, it's hard to know what works today versus a month ago. But I think when you use common sense and social distance and use your head, um, you, you can accomplish a lot. You're not going to eliminate the risk, but you can minimize it. And, uh, and I think the, the best way, you know, would be a vaccine. The most certain way to sort yeah. of snap your fingers and go would well, be a vaccine. Is it amazing, Paul, we didn't talk election. How did we not yes. do that? <laughs> 15 days, right? <laughs> Yeah. So, Michael, could you, could you know, does it does it matter to you who ends up in the White House? I'm not talking about your political preferences, but in terms of the financial markets. Understood. Um, the uh, I think in the short term, no. Um, there's there's pent up demand in the economy. So regardless of who wins in the short term, they're going to look like a hero in terms of economic recovery. Um, and both sides. Uh, you know, appear to want stimulus at some level, whether it's before the election or after. And so from that standpoint, you have, you know, some alignment. What happens is after that, once that sugar high of the initial recovery, the pent-up demand, all of that stuff begins to subside, then you have very different policy prescriptions that, that really kind of coalesce around more government spending, um, and, and that's going to drive economic growth. Uh, on the Biden side, or more private sector spending, less regulation, you know, on the Trump side of things. And then it gets into philosophical issues, whether you, you know, which one you believe is better long term, which one do you believe is going to give you the better rate of return. Um, and, you know, there's, there's a lot of evidence, you know, I, smart people can construct cases all over the map on that one. I think the other factor um, would be that how is Congress made up? We tend to focus a lot on the presidency, um, but the makeup of Congress, who owns which houses by what majority, is also going to be issue. Uh, so that matters. And I, I think investors generally have been so wrapped up in, in the personalities, the headline risk, et cetera, that I sense a lot of people haven't focused on policy yet. And uh, that may come to that may need, need to be done or need to be better priced in going forward. All right, Michael Cugino, thank you so much. President and Portfolio Manager at Permanent Portfolio Family of Funds. Say that five times fast <laughs> on the phone from San Francisco. Uh, deal. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com. And be sure to check out our daily radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.